You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Um, as we always say on holiday weekends, some of you that have been around can finish my sentence here. We're glad people get to go on vacations. Just not glad it's not us. And so if you want to pray for rain or whatever might come down at the coast, feel free if it makes you feel better. Um, no, but really and truly we are thankful that you chose to take time out of your day to be here. We believe here at Covenant Church that it's not random. Um, it's no accident that you find yourself in the seat that you're in this morning. Um, what we do is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we've been in Paul's letter to the Ephesians since January. And so we have this morning and then one more message in Ephesians. And after that, the last three Sundays in July, we're going to do an overview one Sunday of Leviticus, an overview one Sunday of Numbers, and an overview one Sunday of Deuteronomy. All right, I know. Don't worry, we're still going to stay within the normal time frames, whatever's normal time frames of preaching. But we want to do an overview of those books and then in August, we'll do our Covenant Foundations, which is just, just so for those of you that have been around Covenant Church for a while, a good refresher. For those of you that might be new to Covenant Church, the month of August will be a really good time for you to plug in uh, because we'll spend each Sunday talking about our core values. And Lord willing, if we make it on the other side of August, then we'll start the book of Joshua. And so um, big, big, big time book there that we'll be in for probably quite a few months. And so this morning, though, we're in Ephesians 6. Verses 10 through 20. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. 
Lord, thank you for giving us another opportunity to gather here in your name. Um, Lord, this section of scripture is, is packed. Um, there's probably ten sermons in these verses. Um, but Lord, this morning I have the task of preaching one. And Lord, my hope would be your will, and Lord, by your grace, that it would be the general point and purpose of this. But Lord, in order for anything eternal to happen, in order for this to be an effective time, um, we have to have your Spirit. And so Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Help us to learn. Um, Father, help us to understand uh, the warnings that Paul gives and and. To have a better grasp and seriousness around the spiritual realities that are around us. Father, I thank you most of all that this passage should not and certainly is not meant to strike fear in our hearts, but it's meant to give courage and confidence, not in our own strength, but in you. And so, Lord, I pray that that happens this morning. You are glorified in all things. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. For any army, team, um, there's probably some other scenarios I could, I could think of, but in, in the moment, it's, it's anytime there's a battle or there's a competition, one, one part that's really important is understanding who you're up against. I know the way football is these days, like, like high school football. I played some high school football. I know I don't look like it, but I did. It wasn't impressive, but I did play. They gave me a jersey and a helmet. I was thankful for that. But back when I was coming up, these opposing teams, the coaches would meet somewhere in the middle, and they would swap VHS tapes to, to, to look at film. And, and the purpose of looking at that film was for the opposing team to look and see how good you were, to see what schemes you used. And there's certainly never been a war, at least not one that lasted very long, to where both sides didn't put some calculated efforts and time into understanding the enemy, understanding the strengths, and knowing what they were up against. Well, this morning, and I've, since we've been in Ephesians, I've probably had, I've told Joseph and Brandon before service, probably 20 or 30 people that have come up to me in the last six months and said, so you ready for that armor sermon? So I feel like the expectations for this section of Scripture are really high. I'm probably not going to meet your expectations. To be honest, I'm probably not going to meet my expectations because there's a lot here. But the main thing that I want us to see this morning, first and foremost, is that Jesus Christ is victorious. And so let that be what's supreme in your mind. And so a truth that's transcendent is that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And everything, every single thing is under his authority. But one thing that I also want us to know the reality of is the spiritual battle that's going on around us. Friends, whether you're a Christian this morning or not, the truth is, is you are a part of a cosmic spiritual battle. And what worries me, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically to the Christians at this point, is that we don't take it very seriously. We live in a country that uh, we don't see a lot of, well, well, we're starting to see, but in, in history past, we haven't seen a lot of really visible uh, witchcraft and those kind of things in other countries. I, I met some guys last week that 
had lunch with. Rodney was there with me, and the, this guy was sharing some stories. Both of them were sharing stories about their own country as we talked through this passage. And uh, th- they had a keen awareness and a seriousness that they'd been trained with as to the reality of the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. And as Christians, we have a very, very dangerous adversary. We face something, someone scarier and stronger than most of our biggest fears. And Paul uses this word here for him, the devil. The word devil means slanderer or accuser. And so again, as we start to understand our enemy, that's important because we think about the fact that we're in war and there's a spiritual battle going on around us. Well, well, here's the chief of our enemy. It's the devil. But his name doesn't mean mighty warrior. His name doesn't mean power. His, his name means liar, fake, fraud. He loves to accuse. Like, so that's his nature. So, so his battle is not like a normal battle. Like, like, so that right off the bat we know that this enemy, he doesn't play fair. But I want to spend just a second answering some questions about Satan. And I promise you, I'm going to preach more about Jesus this morning than Satan. But I want to be sure that we understand what we're dealing with and what we're up against. And the first question some of us may have in regards to the devil is, who is he? In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, this is speaking of Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and here's where he fell, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Again, if you underline or highlight, or if you want to go, all right, so how did Satan get in the position that he's in now? That one sentence says it all, or the end of that one sentence says it all. Verse 14, at the end, I will make myself like the Most High. Verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I don't have this scripture, but jot down Ezekiel chapter 28, 14 through 17. And what you'll learn there about Satan is that he was the most beautiful creature in all the garden. You ever think about the fall of man and the serpent and think, man, I don't know about y'all, but I don't play with snakes. If you play with snakes and you like to play with snakes, just know about this church, like we don't play with snakes. Right? And so we're scared of serpents. We see serpents and we think, oh my goodness, let me stay away from the serpent. And, and, and so we kind of take that understanding to Genesis chapter 3. But what Scripture teaches is that it's highly likely that the serpent was the most attractive, the most beautiful being in the garden. Remember who we're dealing with. Somebody who loves a false narrative. Somebody who loves to masquerade themselves as something that they're not. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, this is simple enough. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, this is Christ, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Satan is a created being that was a part of the angelic 
powerful worship of the Lord. And at some point, there's no time frame that I know of, at some point in history before creation, sin came, and the way that sin came into Satan's heart was through the sin of pride, and he desired to be God. So what does he do? And you might want to take a picture of this slide. I don't have time to go through all of the details or the cross-references, but the first thing that we learn, and, and even in verse 11 of our section today, is that he still schemes. He schemes. It means that he has a strategy. He has a plan. He's not operating off the cuff. He, he, he's not winging it. Second, he seeks. 1 Peter 5.8 is pretty scary little verse where it talks about Satan prowling like a roaring lion. So if you watch any National Geographic, you know that there's, there's lines that, that crouch and sneak and hide and they look for the weakest gazelle or whatever it is, deer that they're after, and that's the one that they get at the, at the most opportune time. But he's seeking. And so he has schemes, he has a strategy, he has a plan, and part of that is seeking out, again, just keep this in mind, people. He has schemes and plans and strategies against people, and he's seeking out people. Third, he lies. 2 Corinthians 11.3 makes that crystal clear. And in John, I believe it's chapter 8, where Jesus himself speaks to Satan as the father of lies. Fourth, he traps and I use the word traps. You might want to use the word ensnare. In fact, Paul uses that in 2 Timothy 2.26 where he talks about the snares of the devil or the devil can ensnare you. Again, you think of this idea that he schemes, he seeks, he lies. Well, that means that he's, he, he literally sets these traps. And so he lures us in for the purpose of destruction. Next, he hinders 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul speaks very clearly about the fact that somehow, still under God's providence and sovereignty, that Satan hindered his work. That doesn't mean stopped. Hindered. Next. He agitates. It's a pretty broad category. In 2 Corinthians 12.7, Paul talks about a thorn that's in his flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. We don't know what it is. There are a lot of ideas. But just think of things that we might just call random. Aches and pains and diseases and illness and accidents and tragedies. That's one way that we're engaged in this spiritual battle is that Satan, he agitates and he knows, he knows how fragile we are even though often we forget how fragile we are. And when we come in seasons where we're not thinking about how fragile we are, he's scheming, he's seeking, he's lying, he, he'll ensnare us, and he can do these little deals, whatever it might be, to cause pain to our bodies that can harm our faith and wreck our trust in the Lord. Next, number eight. It's not up there. There's only seven. There's actually more than seven. I'm on seven. Oh, thank you, Zach. I'm glad you're paying attention. Better than I am. He agitates and he, he tempts. Mark chapter 1, verse 13. 
Jesus himself was tempted by Satan. Next. He's an imposter. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that he masquerades himself as a child of light. And last, he wrestles. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians speaks plainly of this wrestle that we are in with Satan. And he says, the Apostle Paul makes it clear, and listen, brothers and sisters and friends, we don't wrestle. Our primary fight here isn't with flesh and blood. It's really hard for us to grasp because basically what we know and what we feel and what we touch and what's, what's tangible, what he seeks after, when he agitates us, like what he hurts, it's, it's flesh and blood. Whenever someone makes us mad or sins against us or there's conflict, like we think, no, that's against flesh and blood. But what Paul's teaching us is that our greatest battle, and in fact all battles, can be attributed to this spiritual battle that we're all in. We have an enemy that wrestles with us so he has a lot that he does according to scripture next question is this is he alone is it just one guy one fallen angel well, look in our scripture for today verse 12 he says for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against there's four and they'll be up here you'll see them there's four first against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. Now, interesting for those of you that love the Bible, and I'm sure most of you do, not all of you, this is the only place that word is used in the entire Bible. Cosmic powers. Over this present darkness and against, here's four, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So is he alone? And the answer, according to Scripture, is an emphatic no. He's not alone. So evidently when Satan fell, there were many, many angels that fell with him. And that's why you have the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil. And, and so a lot of our interactions, and again, I don't want to get in too much depth here, and I really, my design is not to scare you. Remember, we're, we shouldn't be. If you're a believer, there's no reason to be scared. But the chances are, none of us have ever had a direct interaction with Satan. But he has these demons. He has these spiritual forces of evil, these cosmic powers that are real. And so, he, again, he's not scheming alone. He's scheming with legions and forces and rulers and authorities. And evidently, there's, there's structure in these spiritual systems of darkness and that's what we're up against. Probably the most important question we all have at this point is the next one. How does he relate to the Lord? And I, and, and I may have not said anything up to this point that you've disagreed with. But I wonder how many of us Christians, and not just here, but Christians in general, think of Satan as maybe an equal power to God, but if nothing else, just a little bit less than God. And so we literally are hoping and sort of, you know, wringing our hands and just praying that the Lord can be victorious or that the Lord can be successful or that Satan doesn't pull a fast one on God and trick him or he doesn't figure out a scheme that kind of throws Jesus off his throne. 
I think a lot of us approach Satan that way, and that's probably one of the reasons we don't talk about him or think about him very much is because we're sort of scared of what he might be able to do. Well, if that's you, please listen here. How does he relate to the Lord? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created. That's by Christ. By him all things All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. And here's what I did on these next few verses or these next few slides. We chased these two words around that Paul uses here, ruler and authorities. All right, so you see it here in Colossians. So whether thrones or dominions or rulers, there's our word, or authorities, there's our other word, all things were created through him and for him. So... How does Satan, how do these spiritual forces, these cosmic powers, these rulers and these authorities, how do they relate to the Lord? Well, let's start here. He made them, and they were made through Him, and listen, for Him. And so in their mind, they're thinking that maybe they can defeat Him, or maybe they can overcome Him, or maybe Satan will be the one that they worship. That's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen. There's no chance that it happens. In fact, He's so sovereign over them that they work for Him. And so somehow in the mystery of God's providence, what they intend for evil, He intends for what? Good. How do they relate to the Lord? Second. The Lord disarmed them. And if, you, if you're taking notes, you might want to say a couple of more things. He disarmed, humiliated, and triumphed over them. He disarmed, humiliated, and triumphed over them. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Listen, this is the gospel. We who were dead spiritually, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Amen. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, listen, nailing it to the cross. You remember what Satan's name means, what the devil means, accuser. And so the number one thing our enemy has to hold over our heads is our guilt. Is the fact that the Lord is holy and we are sinners. And so he can accuse and accuse and accuse. And everything he accuses me of, he's not lying. I'm guilty. Watch this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, here's our words, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen? So he's a lion that's prowling, but he has no claws. He only has gums in his mouth. He looks fierce. He looks scary, but he doesn't have a weapon. And if he has a weapon, it has no bullets. His sword's not sharp. And even if it was sharp, it can't pierce our armor because the Lord himself has disarmed our enemy. He can still agitate and do all the things we talked about, but he cannot. If you're a child of God this morning, if you have come to the Lord Jesus in faith, your guilt right there, he set it aside. Your sin, he set it aside. Well, what does that mean? He nailed it to the cross. And that means our greatest enemy, who is Satan, he's been disarmed. 
He has nothing. He can't accuse us of anything because our guilt and our sin and our condemnation has been taken and it was put on Jesus Christ. That's past sin, that's present sin, and that's future sin. So there's no chance, if you're a believer today, that your sin resurfaces in the future unforgiven. It's not coming back up. He nailed it to the cross. So he's a big, ugly, scary, whatever enemy. But he's disarmed. Our king humiliated him. And triumphed over him. Third. It would have to mean this. They are subjected to him. 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. And there are many other scriptures. Look at the book of Job. There are lots of places we could have gone to see this. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels. Here's our words. Authorities and powers having been what? Say it with me. Three words. Subjected to him they have a king and it's Jesus and so when the apostle Paul instructs the Ephesian church about spiritual warfare he is directly teaching something that's really important it's a reality and that reality is that we are at war But brothers and sisters and friends, as we move forward this morning, and I only have a few more minutes, Christ won. We're not trying to win. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you're a victor. Now, we don't feel victorious all the time, but it's all ready, done, and it's real. And praise the Lord, one day we will experience the fullness of that victory. But this is a war that we are all called to engage in. So, again, if you're a Christian and you're going, all right, so who's in this war? All right, look at me. You. You. It's your armor. You're not dependent on my armor. I'm not dependent on your armor. We all, as individuals, have been saved as individuals by Jesus Christ if you have trusted Him. And so this is really important. We don't depend on other people's armor. We depend on our own armor. So we're all called to fight. In verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, this is a passive command. He doesn't say, uh, get strong. He says, be strong. But it's a passive command to a people, and if you're familiar with the Ephesians, you know how they end up in, in Revelation. Like They're spiritually weak. I can relate. So it's a passive command, a call to battle, a call to war to a spiritually weak people. But if you notice the repetition in verse 11, in verse 13, and verse 14, he says to stand, to withstand, to stand Therefore, to take your stand. And that's the point of the passage, is that we are to stand. But we aren't to stand in our own strength. And, and so it's not just important that we understand a little bit about our enemy and understand what he's like and, and the forces that are behind him, but it's also 
equally important to be informed on how to fight and where our strength comes from. I want to read to you from 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 17. Then I'm going to, I'm going to blow quick through these uh, pieces of armor. But this is, this is really important. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. This is the Apostle Paul. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Listen. Oh, this is beautiful. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will, certain, will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we don't move forward in fear. We don't move forward wondering if we're going to be strong enough. Let me go ahead and answer that for you. You're not. I'm not in my own strength. And so this stand firm, this put on your armor, is not a call for us to try to muster up the strength of ourselves or to figure out a way for us to stand firm on our own. It's not a call for us to depend on anybody else except the Lord Jesus Christ. While it is true that Paul had his eyes on Roman soldiers as he wrote this, he is chained to a Roman soldier Probably 24-7 at this point as he's writing this letter. He does see a Roman soldier. And I know a lot of commentaries and books talk about that he sees a Roman soldier. And so he's looking at a Roman soldier. And he's, he's writing about the armor of a Roman soldier. That, that's likely. But I think Paul's mind went back further than that. Because every piece of armor in the Old Testament is mentioned as armor that the Lord wears or that Jesus himself wears. Let me show you this slide real fast. My Isaiah. 11.5, righteousness shall be the belt, if you go back, Zach, yes, yeah, I. righteousness shall be the belt of his way, speaking of Christ, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, speaking of Christ, who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. Isaiah 59.17, again, of Jesus, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah 49 verse 2 of Christ. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield. Psalm 18 verse 2. I think too often we see spiritual warfare in this particular scripture as an individual believer's call to put on our own armor and fight demonic forces alone as if to sort of test our faith or to prove our faith but but this this call in Ephesians 6 isn't you becoming these things it's not you becoming truth or you becoming righteousness or you becoming salvation or you becoming faith it's it's about what you already are in Jesus it's about Jesus being our righteousness it's about Jesus being our salvation Jesus being our truth and us being fully dependent on the words of Jesus himself. And so the belt of truth. This truth is important in Ephesians. Those of you that have been with us, you've seen the importance that Paul's put on the truth. The truth is revealed in the gospel. The truth is what believers must be about when they speak to one another. But I don't think this, again, this isn't about us trying to become truth. It's about us operating in light of the truth that Jesus is and how that truth has impacted 
us. So as believers, one of the ways it means for us to put on the belt of truth is to be people of truth with our language, with our behavior, with our attitude. And coming to Christ and resting in Jesus is coming to the truth. And we are to put the truth of Christ on every day and it is meant to impact the way that we live. Next, there's the breastplate of righteousness. Again, this isn't positional. This isn't you putting on righteousness as your salvation. This is speaking of your practical righteousness, like how the righteousness of Christ is meant to change the way that you live. Remember our theme for the book of Ephesians, truth for life. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness are meant to be a defense as we live in light of these things. Third is, are the gospel shoes. Now, now, there are a lot of interpretive issues with this, but basically what Paul is saying here is we should always as Christians be ready to share the gospel, to be ready to preach Christ, and it's the gospel that brings peace. Th- this idea is not necessarily a certain kind of shoe. It speaks to a readiness, a preparedness, as people who are serious about the truth and serious about practical righteous living, that is a way to be prepared to speak the gospel. Next, Paul mentions the shield of faith. Satan wreaks havoc on our faith, doesn't he? There's social rejection, suffering, pain, illnesses, tragedies. What this call here is, is rather than retreat, for us to take up the shield of faith and remember the things that we just learned about our enemy. He's on a leash. He has no claws. He has a Lord, and it's the same Lord that we have. And what He intends for evil, God and His power and His providence and sovereignty intends for good. Putting on the shield of faith, I think, is us embracing like the church at Smyrna did in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, these gospel, this gospel readiness in our feet, shield of faith. And next is the helmet of salvation. One of the greatest ways we resist the devil is to be assured of our salvation. And this morning, I mean, just asking you a really simple question about what you believe about Jesus Christ. I mean, do you believe that your salvation is 100% totally His work? As I understand Scripture and the Gospel, salvation can't be at any level decisively up to us. If it were, we wouldn't be saved. If that's true, putting on this helmet of salvation is not something that brings assurance. 
when we struggle with our assurance, and I'm not telling you that I don't, when I struggle with my assurance, it is when I'm thinking that my salvation has something to do with my own goodness or my own righteousness or my own failure to be those things. Gospel salvation is a wholehearted faith in the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. So when you think about the helmet of salvation and what it all protects is it protects what's between our ears and what's between our ears is a brain and what happens in our brain is it's where we think and it's where this battle is primarily fought is in our mind, particularly around our assurance of our salvation. Satan wants us to believe that we're not worthy. Satan wants us to believe that our sin is too great. Satan wants us to believe that we're too far gone. Satan wants to accuse, 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 and accuse. But if you have trusted Jesus this morning, you can respond to him with the truth that you are alive in Christ, that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven, that you are reconciled, that somehow you are right now currently seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Your salvation is secure because Jesus secured it 2,000 years ago. I had a conversation with a lady this week that's been in, been in sin. She's made some horrible decisions. And she's wrestling with this, this, this very thing, like her salvation. And she says, hey, I, I, I want to know the Lord. Like, I love the Lord. I know that I've sinned against the Lord. And I know that there was this moment in my life where I prayed this prayer. And I'm like, oh, time out. Look, look, I'm great. I'm glad about the prayer. That's a wonderful thing. But if, if that's what you're looking back to, to be assured of your salvation, you're not looking back far enough. If you want assurance for your salvation, you need to look back about 2,000 years or so to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't bank on your prayer because you're going to go, well, did I get it right? Did I say it right? Was I genuine? I got baptized because my friend got... Like, all those things come to mind and Satan just shoots those darts and attacks our faith, particularly our salvation, because if we're not secure in our identity and salvation in Jesus Christ, we're weak. We're defeated spiritually. So don't look back to assurance of a work of yours you want to be assured of your salvation, put your eyes on Jesus and take a deep breath and rest in His grace. The sword of the Spirit. Finally, there's an offensive weapon. The believer must take up the sword and engage the enemy. This particular sword is not like this gigantic samurai sword. Some of you may be disappointed by that. I don't know. But it's more of a dagger. But what's interesting is, is the word that he uses, the Greek word that he uses for word here, what he normally uses is logos, L-O-G-O-S, which is just a general sp spoken word. He uses the Greek word rima. Why does that matter? Well, rima is a very specific, like generally the general call of the gospel, whosoever will come is a beautiful call. The rima call of the gospel is Rodney, come to me. And so he's speaking of, the intensity of the battle for us as individuals, but also the importance of us to speak the truth to one another and the importance for us to believe the truth of Jesus. And that is our weapon. 
Don't be disappointed. What do you want? Bazooka, grenades, tanks. We have all we need right here. And there will be a time in your life, if you live long enough, that all you're going to have are the promises of this book. And it will be everything you need in this life and forever. I couldn't help but wonder about the soldier's back. Everything, like, they're covered. What about their back? Because Paul mentions no equipment for their back. And I was reminded of a quote in Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian alludes to this. Because he had no armor for his back, Christian decided that that being the case, the best option was to stand his ground. Remember the point? Stand firm. Therefore, stand. Take up your stand. So it's my prayer this morning that we hold our ground against the evil one, not with our strength, but in the Lord's strength, not with our own armor, but in the Lord's armor as we are a part of advancing the gospel in this city and across the world. Joseph, you can come back, man. Um, and I, I have to close quickly. I, I thought this might be the case this morning. But in verses 18 through 20, in verses 18 through 20, you might have noticed that Paul... speaks to prayer. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. In 19 and 20, he goes on to speak of some of his own personal um, struggles, but also just asking the Ephesian believers for prayer. Did I drop? Asking the Ephesian believers for prayer. So I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Oftentimes we think of prayer as just this kind of conduit for blessing and comfort. And I'm not saying that don't ask the Lord for those things. But in light of this passage, Paul speaks of prayer in the context of a battle, of a war. I don't know what's going on in a lot of our lives today but the Lord does you may not be in a struggle chances are if we again like if we're here long enough we're gonna be in them at some point one of the great resources that God has given us is prayer one of the doors that Jesus opened through his work on the cross was so that we could commune with confidence with the Lord I want us to take a few moments this morning. You personally, thank God for what He's done for you through Christ. And then with the best words that you can, ask Him for help and strength in whatever particular situation comes to mind or pray for whatever individual comes to mind.
about this comic response. I've, you should have gotten a communion, some communion elements on your way in. If you didn't, there should be some in the seat in front of you. This is an act of worship for believers. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I ask you not to partake in these elements. And that's not because anybody in here is better than you. It just simply means if you haven't trusted Christ, then there's nothing for you to remember and celebrate. So if you haven't trusted Jesus, what we offer you this morning is much greater than these elements is Christ himself. But if you are a Christian this morning, this is a blessed reminder of the victory that we have through the body of Jesus Christ and through the blood of Jesus Christ. His body did through obedience and through death what ours could have never done. His blood that was shed on the cross did what the blood of bulls and goats and even our own blood shed for our own sins could have never done because our blood isn't perfect. His blood was perfect. So the gospel call is not to an altar. There's no need for another sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice. The gospel call and what we've been invited to through the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus is a table, which means that we are part of His family and we are sons and daughters of His. So take and eat the bread this morning in remembrance of the body of Christ. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.